You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Have you ever wrestled with God about something that you thought was a good thing that you wanted in your life and, and, and you thought, God, this is a good thing, why shouldn't I have this? And maybe you wrestled with the Lord about it. Well, I certainly have. I think all of us do. But I remember a time in my life when I very badly wanted to get married as a single young man. I had seen my parents' marriage and, 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 and the way they are even today and just how that encouraged me. And I thought, you know, I want to be married. I want to have a family someday. But I wrestled with God often about that area of my life. I would wrestle it under my control and do things the way I wanted. And there was one particular instance where God taught me a lesson. It was about a girl that attended my church. I was wrestling with God about whether or not I could go out with her. And as I was praying about it, I didn't find any peace in my heart to move ahead and ask this girl out. But I was still wrestling with the Lord about it. I thought it would be a great thing, a great relationship. At least outwardly, it looked like it, it would be you know, something that was a good thing. And finally, I felt that God said to me, okay, you've been asking me about this for weeks. I'm going to give you permission to move ahead, but I want you to know this is your doing, not mine. That's what I sensed the Lord speaking to my heart as I spent some, you know, several prayer sessions about this. Well... I rushed ahead like a kid who gets something that he doesn't really understand what it means, you know, and I was so excited, and I rushed ahead into this relationship and uh, found out it was a big mistake. You see, less than two months later, this girl ended up breaking up with me, right? And guess what she told me? She told me what I already knew in my own heart. She said, Phil, I just don't have a piece about this relationship and I don't feel like God is leading us at all. <laughs> and, and I remember I was just like, yeah, no duh, I've, I've been, I felt that way too, but I, I, I forced it to happen anyways. Interestingly enough, God used that moment in my life. It was exactly what I needed at that time to teach me a lesson because it brought me to a place of complete surrender of my love story to God. My love life was an area that I wrestled with the Lord in and tried to control. And in that moment, I realized that I really didn't know what was best for me, that I really didn't have my best interests at heart, even though I thought I did. But there was one who did, and that was my heavenly father. So for the next two years, I didn't date anyone because I felt that God wanted me to lay that down on his altar, to completely trust him in that area and allow him to write my love story by leading me to the right person. The next person that I took out on a date, well, you guessed it. That would be my beautiful bride, Rebecca, who's sitting right over there. And I've been blessed ever since. I know she's the right one for me. But God was teaching me a lesson through this whole thing. He was teaching me the same lesson that he's been teaching the world since he created Adam and Eve. And that is that God is the only one who truly knows what is best for us. And if we'll surrender our lives to him, he will lead us to his best. Because he's an ever-present help in our times of need and trouble. Let's pick up our text in 1 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 1. Follow along in your Bibles with me this morning. 
We read, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Verse 2. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pause here for a moment. I want to give you some context. We've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're still in the first section. The first section of the book is chapters 1 through 8, where we see the rise of the prophet Samuel. As he becomes a leader, as he judges Israel, God putting him in that position. Chapter 9 will begin to take us into the life of Saul, Israel's first king. And then we'll begin to see the life of David as well. Those are the three main characters in the book. But for right now, we're, t- we're dealing with the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. A couple weeks ago, we saw that the Philistines had actually captured the Ark of the Lord's Covenant in a battle. They brought it as the spoils of war and put it in their own temple where... Uh, we learned, or where we see, we saw that the Philistines learned to fear God, that He was a great and mighty God to be feared, the God of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against them. So they sent the ark back to Israel, and the ark ends up in this place, Kirjath Jearim, here in chapter seven, and it's going to stay here for about one hundred years. Um, it's going to be there throughout Samuel's lifetime and Saul's lifetime. And then in the kingship of David, it's finally going to be brought back to Jerusalem and placed in the tabernacle there. But until then, we see that even though the Ark of the Lord's Covenant has returned to Israel, Israel has not completely returned to the Lord. They know that there's something not right. And in these verses, we see that they, they were lamenting after the Lord. There was something wasn't right. They didn't have peace. They learned to fear God and His holiness, but they have not yet repented from their idols. So we pick up the story. After 20 years of the ark being in Kirjath-Jerim, we see an event in Israel that is orchestrated by Samuel in his rise to leadership. Look at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only. If you underline in your Bible, please underline that phrase, serve Him only. And then we'll continue, it says, And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Let's pause here for a moment. Notice with me, first of all, Samuel lays down a challenge, an ultimatum, if you will. He's basically saying to Israel, listen, you need to choose this day who you're going to serve. Because if you return to the Lord, you need to return with all your hearts and you need to put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you. This is Samuel in his role as a prophet, stepping up and challenging us, challenging God's people to examine our hearts and to make up our minds as to who we are going to serve. You see, God's covenant with Israel was a unilateral conditional covenant or we might say a unilateral conditional contract. 
What does that mean? Well, a unilateral covenant means that one party stipulates the terms of that. God is the one who stipulates the terms of how the creatures that he created are going to relate with him. So that's the unilateral part. But the conditional part is the part where Israel was meant to walk in a relationship with the Lord. You see, the Lord provided grace and mercy as the means by which his people could have relationship with him. But it was up to Israel to choose to walk in those ways. We might compare it to a marriage relationship here this morning. In fact, if you haven't picked up on this yet, marriage, that relationship that is instituted by God in the book of Genesis, is meant to actually reflect the relationship that God has with his people in a covenant love. It's much greater, you see, than just two people coming together and saying, we love you and let's have some kids together. It's, it's, it's a full-on covenant and pact and relationship that reflects God's glorious love and covenant love for his people. But in a marriage, a marriage is an exclusive pact between a husband and his wife that they are set apart only for each other. If the wife or the husband were to go off and begin to have an intimate relationship with another person, he or she is breaking that contract, that pact, that covenant that that he or she made with their spouse. And so rightly so, there's going to be consequences there. You cannot serve God and idols. You don't get to say that you're loyal to God and yet commit spiritual adultery with other idols. And that is what Samuel's point is in this passage. You cannot say that you're governed by God in a covenant relationship with God. You cannot say that you're God's child and yet be actively pursuing other gods at the same time because God is not down with that. You see, God, because he is a jealous God, that flame of his love is his jealousy. That passion that he has, it is for purity in that relationship. And God knows the destruction of false gods. He knows the deceitfulness of idols. And so he's not going to allow his kids or his children or his, those that have agreed to be in that covenant with him by faith. He's not going to allow them to just slip quietly away. God is going to pursue them. Now, the bales and the asterisks that are mentioned here in verse 4, these are referring to the plurality of Canaanite gods. Baal was considered to be the chief of these false gods, and he's also known as the god of thunder or the god of the storm that brings the rain, fertilizing the earth and bringing the crops. Ashtoreth, also known as Astarte in Greek culture, was the goddess of fertility and also of love and war. And in this Canaanite religion, they called for regular worship rituals that called upon Baal and Astarte to come together in this sexual union that would make the earth fertile for crops and for livestock. This, as you can imagine, led to sexual indulgence and immorality in the culture there that was level on a scale with what we would compare to today's culture around us, I believe. You see, sexual indulgence has always been a sin that has plagued paganism, pagan culture. That is why God called his people Israel to come out from that culture and to be separate and to do things differently. That is why God instituted the relationship of marriage. 
Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse, in, in, in that chapter, that it is better for a, a, a man to be married than to continue just to burn in lust. Because we know, or we, we can see from Scripture, we see biblically, that sexual indulgence, sexual immorality leads a person down a path that is away from the Lord and the Lord's will. Now, Samuel here knows that, and he's calling Israel to, if they want to be right with God, then they're going to have to come out from that. They're going to have to come out from those practices of sexual immorality, and they're going to have to separate themselves to God and worship Him alone. They're going to have to make up their minds where they're going to be. So let's see how the Israelites respond to Samuel's call to repentance in verse 6. It says, They gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Mizpah at, or the children of Israel at Mizpah. Excuse me. Now, if you write in your Bibles, please underline that part where it says poured out before the Lord. And then you can underline fasted that day. And then you can underline the phrase, We have sinned against the Lord. Three things there that I want to point out to you this morning. We see them doing these three things. What do they mean? What does this represent? Well, by pouring out water, that was a symbolic act that symbolized the pouring out of their hearts before the Lord. The nation of Israel came together there at Mizpah. They drew water from a well, something that was precious in the Middle Eastern desert. And they poured that out to the Lord as a a symbol of their hearts being poured out to God. But not only that, they also fasted. Now, biblical fasting was when you don't eat food for a period of time. Usually, it was from sundown one day until sundown the next day, a 24-hour period without food. And, and, And it's actually a great model to follow, I think. If you don't have a medical condition that prevents you from being able to eat. But, but fasting symbolized that they were afflicting themselves because of their sin. And they were humbling themselves before God. That's what this fasting symbolizes. And then you notice also that they were confessing. These are three elements of spiritual renewal that we can all apply in our lives today. In fact, you know what? As I talk with Christians at different times, I'm always amazed to find out how little fasting Christians actually do. Now, I understand if you have a medical condition, such as diabetes or something like that, it could be dangerous. You can fast from other things. God knows what's going on with you and your body. He knows your heart. He knows your motive. But I think that fasting is a great practice for Christians to be doing. When's the last time you guys fasted? When's the last time that you said, you know what, I'm going to starve my flesh And I'm going to use the time that I would be preparing a meal to actually pray and draw near to God for a bit of time and to pour out my heart like water before the Lord. You see, these three things are huge when it comes to spiritual renewal in a Christian's life. But yet so many Christians, we fail to recognize them. Jesus himself, he taught about fasting. He didn't say, if you fast. Jesus said, when you fast. You see, Jesus realized that there was going to be a spiritual power in fasting, that there would be, a, 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 that there would be some spiritual benefit from that practice of, of fasting. And so he said, when you fast. And, 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 and there's a way to go about it. Obviously, we don't go around telling everybody that we're fasting. 
But setting aside food, what, 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 what you could do is you could eat dinner one day and then not eat breakfast or lunch the following day and then break your fast at dinner time. It's a 24-hour period, and, and I think all of us could probably do that, barring a medical condition, as I said before. You drink water during that time, but you do it for the purpose of setting yourself apart to God, to pour out your heart to Him and to make confession of sin. That's an important part of this spiritual renewal process. You see, a lot of times, Christians, why we're not hearing from the Lord, why we don't sense the Lord's presence in our lives, is because we are actively participating in sin. We have set up idols and false gods in our hearts. And we're pursuing those things and pursuing God. And we're wondering why we're not close to God. And here we see this this beautiful act of spiritual renewal led by Samuel, the prophet and judge. Now, as usual, when God's people begin to worship God, the enemy attacks. And we see that happen in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Notice there's a pattern here in these verses. Samuel acting as prophet and priest, interceding on behalf of the nation, offers up this sacrificial lamb whose blood then atones for the sin of the nation. This is a biblical pattern. Samuel is God's man for Israel in the time of their needs. He's God's deliverer, raised up for such a time as this. Samuel would go on to be this great intercessor for his people, interceding on behalf of the nation. It's a great example for anybody who's a spiritual leader of your family. It's a great example for pastors to be interceding on behalf of the people. But guess what? Today, Jesus is our great high priest, prophet, and intercessor. And he's better than Samuel because he's also the Lamb of God who shed his blood, who gave his life for your sins and for mine. He is better than Samuel because not only is he the Lamb of God, he also never ceases to intercede for you day and night, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you and for me right now in the presence of the Lord. What a comfort that is to our hearts to know. Let's see what happens as we continue the story now in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against, the Lord, against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. I, I love this here, how God uses thunder to confuse and weaken the Philistine army. You see, the Philistines and the people in the, in the land of Canaan, they believed that Baal was the god of thunder. And here, the god of Israel created thunder. And he uses it to actually confuse the army of the Philistines and show the world, hey, I'm sovereignly in control here of this situation. Verse 11, continuing on. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Beth Car. 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. And, and by the way, this makes him the very first circuit preacher, in case you were wondering. Verse 17, but he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So notice with me that after this great defeat of the invading army of Philistines, and notice when they came. Did you notice that that army attacked right when Israel had gathered for a time of national repentance and spiritual renewal? Hey, let me tell you guys something this morning. The moment that you step out in your life to repent of something and to separate yourself unto God and to serve the Lord only, you will be attacked. You are setting yourself up. You are becoming a dangerous Christian at that point. <laughs> and, 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 and you will be attacked in some form, in some way, shape, or form, whether through your flesh, through the world, through oppression. It's going to come against you. But notice here that after the great defeat of that army, Samuel does something very interesting. He sets up a stone and names it Ebenezer. That name Ebenezer means stone of help in the Hebrew language. So he sets up this giant stone in the field and calls it the stone of help. Why does he do this? Well, he does it to remind Israel that thus far the Lord God has helped them. That this far, the God, has, the God of Israel has helped us up to this point. It's a way, in other words, to remember what God has done in the past, and it marks a hope for the future. You know, I believe that we need this practice in our lives today. I believe that we need the practice of setting up an Ebenezer stone in our lives because sometimes we have a tendency to get discouraged in life. Sometimes we can look at our marriage and we can think, man, this is not the way, it's not going the way I thought it was going to go. I think my marriage might be over. Or we might look at our finances and think, you know what? I don't know if I've got enough to pay the bills. Or, man, I, I've way overextended myself and I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Or we could look at our health and we could see it deteriorating and we could think, you know what? I don't think I'm going to live anymore. There are many different trials Many different tribulations that we face in this world, all of them God is using to produce a character which is eternal in our lives. But sometimes we think, man, I just don't know. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. What we need in those moments is an Ebenezer stone, a stone that reminds us that God has helped us this far and he is not going to fail us now. God is not going to give up on our marriage. God is not going to give up on our needs. God is not going to give up on, a, on, on that uh, health or, or allow our, our health to get to the point where he doesn't or where he allows his word to us to fail. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that even if we die, 
God will never fail to give us eternal life because he promised that to us and God cannot lie. For me, an Ebenezer stone in my life is the practice of journaling. Journaling has become my stone of help. As I look back through years of journals, time spent with the Lord in the morning, pouring out my heart to him like water and seeing how God has been through the years so faithful how he has been with me this far up to this point in my life. And it's been a source of encouragement to look and to say, look how God delivered me from this and from that and from that time and this time when I was in desperate straits and how God has been there for me every single time. And it now has come for me a a, a point of faith where I look back and I read and I think, wow, Lord, look at how you did it this time. Or man, I didn't think this was going to be how you did it. Or actually, you let me suffer in this trial because you were really teaching me a lot of things about myself. And all of the ways God has been faithful through and through and how he delivered me, encouraged me, strengthened me, and blessed me. But you know what? The question I have for you is, what is your Ebenezer stone? What what are you going to do to mark the moments of your life that God has been faithful to you? You know, it's going to look different for different people. Journaling is just an idea. It's just a suggestion. It it could be totally something different for you. Maybe it's artwork. Maybe it's uh, an actual stone that you collect and put in a vase and, and write a verse on. I don't know. But I'd like to encourage you to think about that. And I'd like for you to come up with a way to set up your own Ebenezer stone in your life. In fact, that's your homework assignment this morning. Yes, at church, first homework assignment, well, last of 2018, okay? But I want you to think back on your year and just think, how has the Lord been faithful to me? How has the Lord delivered me this year? What's a promise that God has given me in my life this year? That's another thing that I'll do that are Ebenezer Stones is I'll write on the verses in my Bible, you know, hey, God, you gave me this promise on 12, you know, 12, 30, 18. And, and that will be something that as I'm flipping through my Bible, I see it and I go, oh yeah. In fact, this morning, one of the verses in our passage is an Ebenezer stone for me. That verse in, in chapter 7 at the end there where it says that Samuel always came back to Ramah. God used that verse to lead me back to the United States as I was serving as a missionary in Costa Rica. And I was praying about where God wanted me to go next and what he wanted me to do next. And, and I was reading, happened to be reading through this passage of scripture and the Lord really spoke to me. The Holy Spirit spoke to me through that verse that he was gonna lead me and my family back to the United States, which is our home. And, and, and it's interesting how the Lord does that, but, but maybe you have something like that. But your homework assignment is to spend some time doing a spiritual end of the year assessment, looking back, creating that Ebenezer stone for 2018. Well, we're not going to make it through all of chapter 8, but I want to dive into it anyways and at least get, get, get through as, what I can in the time I've got left. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 8. It says, Now it came to pass that when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Let's pause right here for a moment. This is so sad to read this right here. When you look at Samuel, you're looking at his sons. 
Much like Eli's sons, the sons of Samuel turned aside. And in this case, we're not told that Samuel's to blame for this, like Eli was. Eli clearly had a part to play in the reason his sons were the way that they were. But here, in fact, we read that Samuel has actually built an altar of worship there in his home. In in chapter 7, we saw that. And so he was leading his family spiritually whenever he was home. But here, it only tells us in these first three verses that his sons did not walk in his ways. Instead, they fell into the temptation and the lure of greed and money. Hey, the Bible tells us that the love of money is a root of evil. It's not the root of all evil, but it is a root of many evils. And listen, these sons fell into it because they loved money more than they loved God. And that caused them to twist justice, to pervert justice. They became corrupt. You know, sometimes, in spite of all that a parent does to guide their children to the Lord, even building an altar of worship to the Lord in the home, those children can still choose to walk away. They can still choose to live a sinful life. And apparently that's what happened here. And it's a sad, sad moment. It's a sad, sad thing. It's a sad commentary on the lives of Samuel's children. But let that be an exhortation to you today through God's word to not let this be the commentary of your life. That, let it not be said of us that we turned aside and went after dishonest gain because we loved money more than God. Let's continue to see where this goes in verse 4. It says, Then all the leaders, all the elders of Israel, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Pretty encouraging guys, right? Hey, you're old. (laughs) It's time for a new leader. Verse 6, or um, verse 5, Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. I want you to notice something very interesting here. It seems that Samuel took this request for a king as a personal slap in his face. You see, he felt that he was being rejected here as the people's leader. But notice that Samuel sets a great example for us here. Instead of blowing up or getting angry at these elders... He takes it to the Lord in prayer. I love that. Samuel understood the principle of James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It'll be on your screen. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see, any time that we feel rejected or disrespected or let down by someone that's close to us, Samuel sets a great example for us to follow. We should take it to the Lord. Instead of blowing up and getting angry or responding in a way that we know we're going to regret later, which I often do to my uh, misfortune, if I would just learn to follow this example, if we would learn to follow this, hey, listen, I think we could avoid a lot of problems in our lives. You see, I don't do this and I get convicted by Samuel's example here. Because when I do what Samuel says, when we do take these things to the Lord in prayer, we'll find out just like Samuel finds out here, it's not about him. It's not about him. It's about the Lord. There's always a deeper spiritual reason for what's really going on. Check it out in verse 7. That's essentially what we see the Lord saying. 
The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. See, Samuel, the Lord says, This isn't about you. It's actually about me. The Lord has given Israel men to be judges and priests and others to be prophets, but I'm their king. They're actually rejecting me, the Lord is saying. Now, the Lord knows that they were going to do this. He's already seen it coming. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So God knows here that the Israelites are just doing what he already knew they were going to do. They were going to ask for a human king. It fits with the pattern of the children of Israel as they've been going along. And God, in his great wisdom, he's already got a plan too. Now, God's plan was for that king to come from the tribe of Judah. And I believe that it was God's will for that that plan to begin with David. But because the people are pushing for this, they think they know what's best and they're pushing ahead. We're going to see what that gets them in chapter 9. But God's plan was that from the tribe of Judah, he would raise up a king who would uh, uh, be the king of kings, whose the scepter would never depart from his uh, uh, family, from his name. And, and he would fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king in Israel with perfection. But God already has that going on. In the meantime, if Israel wanted a human king right then, hey, God was going to allow that to happen. They would ha- they, but he wants them to know. Notice he wants them to know everything that that entails. And, and we're not going to read all of this, but basically verse 10 through the end of the chapter here, Samuel is informing the people of what a king is going to expect from them. He informs them that their request is going to result in military conscription of their sons for the army, royal recruitment of their daughters to work in the palace and the administration of the king's palace. It would mean taxes on everything because government is expensive, especially if you live in the government of the United States of America. It's really expensive right now, isn't it? Uh, I'm looking at the deficit continuing to grow, and I'm just cringing because they're stealing from my kids, aren't they? It's theft, and it's wrong. Um, And I'm just throwing that in there. This isn't even in my notes. I don't even know why I'm going off on that. But government is expensive, and so Samuel's like, hey, it's going to cost you a lot to have a king. In fact, there's going to be taxes on everything from produce to livestock, and it's also going to mean that you, instead of serving God, you're going to be serving a mere human, a human king, instead of the God who's delivered them from all of their enemies. But in the end, having a mere human king was what the Israelites wanted. But that, even that was going to fail them. God knew that their human king was going to fail them. He knows that it's only when we turn to God and allow God to govern us that we find this true and lasting peace. Jesus is the only king who is also that prince of peace, everlasting father, mighty God, and wonderful counselor. I'll close it out here. 
In verse 22, if you'll read that last verse with me, or we'll start verse 21 there. It says, you know what? Let's read verse 19 to the end. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So listen, after Samuel heard about how hard on, or after the people heard about how hard on them it would be, they still don't care. They want a king anyway. They kind of remind me of me a lot of times. I think I know what's best for me. Well, they're going to get their king, as we'll see next week. But as with most things that are initiated by humans who cannot know all the consequences of our choices, they get more problems than they knew about. Not only was the timing wrong, they picked a king from the wrong tribe with the wrong priorities in life, and they showed their human weakness and frailty in forcing this to happen. Now, in conclusion, I want to point out that they, they're just showing us a window here this morning to ourselves. The Bible always shows us a window into our own hearts. And right here, what we see is a window into our own willfulness. We so often think that we know what will be good for us, but we forget that we cannot know all the consequences of our own decisions. It's impossible. That's why we need to be more thankful for all the prayers that we pray that God does not answer. Think about that for a second. How many prayers have you prayed that now looking back on you think, oh man, Lord, thank you that you did not answer that prayer. I have a friend down in Costa Rica who always used to joke around with me. If I ever asked him, hey, do you need anything? You need me to get you anything? He'd always say, yeah, I need a million dollars. If I ever went to the States and I said, hey, can I bring something back with me for you? He'd always say, yeah, bring back a million dollars. I could really use a million dollars. I'd ask him, hey, what can I pray for you today? Well, pray for me to get a million dollars. You know, he'd always be talking about a million dollars. And I've thought about that. What if God just gave all of us a million dollars today? What if he just said, you know what? I'm going to bless Calvary Chapel Paris. And you guys are like, score. We came to the right service today. Just right now, the panel above your seat is going to open up and a million bucks is going to land on the chair next to you. But you know what? I think we'd be in big trouble if that happened. And here's why. Our relationship with God would totally change. (laughs) In fact, it might even be in jeopardy of not existing anymore. You see, we don't need what we think will be good for us because as fallen creatures... We aren't even able to make that judgment call correctly. As finite creatures, we can't even be sure that what we think is best for us would really be the best thing for all of eternity. So let me leave you with this this morning. There's an old saying, and it is still true. It says this, God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Always. Church, I pray that you'll be a church that leaves God's best up to him and not taking that into your own hands and trying to force things to happen in life like the Israelites did here. Jesus is God's best. 
God has provided his son Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king. So let us take the son of God and leave the rest because there's nothing better than God's best. Let's pray.